0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match
1: limited by state law. You are Locked on the NBA. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. It is Locked on NBA. I'm David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, host of Locked on NBA and founder of the Locked On Podcast Network. Today's show It is just so fun. Uh, Chris Ballard is the Sports Illustrated writer who just wrote out today a huge piece on Sam Hinkie, the process, and after the process, what he's doing. I strongly, 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 strongly urge you to read the piece. It's really, it's just incredible, uh, the level of detail and all of it. We get into some of it, but not all of it. Uh, Chris is a great writer. I loved his uh, book that he wrote. Uh, it's probably one of my most favorite basketball reads. In fact, as the holiday season is close, he's he's written two that are really really good. Um, but I would suggest strongly the art of a beautiful game. It's all, it's a few years back, um, and it's just a great great basketball read. If you've got a basketball person in your world, Chris's book Art of a Beautiful Game is it is a good I is a good one. But so Chris is interesting. Chris and I actually, of all weird things, have kind of had a parallel lives without really knowing each other. Uh, that much. We both went to uh, small uh, liberal arts colleges in the Southern California area. He went to Pomona. I went to Occidental. We actually were there the exact same years. Uh, I uh, he was a basketball player. I was a baseball player. Uh, he's got all sorts of accolades. I was part of a fraternity that stole stuff that were legendary inside the. Uh, Sky Act conference off the back of a Laverne baseball field insignias that 's like kind of my legendary things. His is he went to Pomona and like did great things, so in that sense we 're not parallel lives. He was a basketball player, he was good, I was a baseball player I was bad. I think I actually probably was part of a group that used to go to basketball games and rag on the opponents uh, in you know, inappropriate ways that only college kids could, and I probably was all over him at some point so we 've kind of ridden these parallel lives, and he now uh, is living in the Bay Area. Uh, where I grew up, so it's kind of a funny little uh, turn along the way. So anyway, uh, I, it was great to get Chris on for this uh, and do just a, a, a really, really enjoyable conversation with him about Sam Hinkie, about the NBA, about the process. Uh, I, hope you, I hope you will enjoy it uh, coming up. Today's show is brought to you by SeatGeek. If you have not done so already, Please make sure you download the SeatGeek app. Go to the settings tab, add a promo code "locked," and they will give you twenty send you twenty dollars back after your first ter- ticket purchase. Now, why SeatGeek? Well, it's the first place I go and look for tickets to concert because one of the E's. So, it's really what SeatGeek is is technology that has turned the world into making it easy for you to take care of buying tickages, ticket ticket purchases. So for example, you don't have to search multiple places because they compile all the tickets in one place. You don't have to worry about which seat's best because they have a ticket score on every ticket that tells you which is the best ticket to buy and for that price and then it's guaranteed so you just get it on your phone. It's really really simple. Download the SeatGeek app go to the settings tab, add the promo code LOCKED and then after your first purchase they'll send you $20 back. Alright, we're getting ready to turn it over to Chris Ballard. Remember this is Locked on NBA, part of the Locked on Podcast Network. The Locked On Podcast Network has a podcast for your favorite NBA team coming out Monday through Friday, bite-sized, 15, 22 minutes, sometimes a little longer, about your team. You'll know more about your team than any other way out there, so make sure you subscribe to Locked On, your favorite team's podcast as well. Special thanks uh, to SeatGeek and huge thanks to Chris Ballard for this incredible piece in Sports Illustrated. So, Chris, the strangest part to me is I read the article on Pocket. I'm not sure I've ever had that experience
0: before. <laughs> uh, that's perfect. That is perfect. So, th- um, yeah, you, you know, that, it's funny. I, if there's one thing we bonded over, it was our love of Pocket. Um, it was a little, a little too much uh, adulation, perhaps, between the two of us. So,
1: Sam Hinky, I actually think is going to have this incredible place in the history of the game. Um, I think he was right. Frankly, uh, might not have done it perfectly, but I think he was right. Does s- spending all this time with him and betting with him for the length of time—do you think he thinks he was right?
0: Oh yeah, uh, I, th- I think without a question, he. Um, and, and I think all people that work with him—they they feel like. You know, "right" a weird word, right? I, you know, I don't even know if that's how Sam would view it. Um, he believes in the logic behind what he did. Um, and I think he, he recognizes that there were areas he could have been better. Uh, but as far as the, the logic and taking advantage of the rules as they were at the time uh, and trying to find holes in the system, I, I think Sam's 100% confident in what he did from that perspective. Now, you know, given the choice to do over a draft pick or this or that, that's different. Those are, he sees those as probabilities. Uh, as opposed to the overall plan,
1: I'm going to dig more into him in a second, but I'm curious about this next question. As I mentioned in the open, you wrote one of my favorite basketball books, The Art of a Beautiful Game. You truly love this game. What did you think of the process?
0: You know, it's, as, at the time, I was torn because I love this just, you know, huge, ballsy move. To try to, to try to redo a team, but I didn't live in Philadelphia. I wasn't taking my kids to Sixers games. It's a little different now that I have, I got a ten-year-old um, and a seven-year-old, and they they see this differently. You think about this window that you have where your your kids are going to get into basketball or not going to get into basketball. and I'm so fortunate that they're enjoying this Warriors golden age here where I live in the Bay Area, whereas I I <laughs> went through like the J.B. Carroll era. Um, so, you know, from that standpoint, I, I totally get both sides of it. But from a this is, this is the best way to try to rebuild a championship. If that's what you're going for. Um, I was impressed and I was impressed mainly, not mainly, but I guess one of the things that really stuck out to me was that he kept going with it. know, yeah, Most people get a job and even some part of them ends up being like, okay, now I got to make this concession to keep this job. And obviously we see it in politics all the time. I'm going to come in with all these high ideals, you know, there is no Mr. Swift, Mr. Smith goes to Washington in real life. Um, And to the extent that you can make that analogy, I think Sam, with his own ideals, came in and he stuck to them so closely over that time period, for better or worse.
1: By the way, that book I mentioned in the open, The Art of the Beautiful Game, as a Hoops fan coming toward Christmas, if I have four books for you, Art of a Beautiful Game by Chris is one of them. Jack McCallum's Seven Seconds or Left would be another one. Jonathan, Abram, Jonathan Abrams, one that came out last year, Boys to Men, or Boys Among Men, would be another one. And then if you go back, I'd go to Halberstam's Breaks of the Game. So those are my four baskets. One of my favorite road days, Chris, I ever had. Cold day in Milwaukee, reading Art of a Beautiful Game at an awesome coffee shop, right looking over a frozen lake. Uh, I think it was heated in the coffee shop, so that's what I liked about it. Uh, you, you, You mentioned the kind of ballsy view that he had and what my one of my big takeaways from reading your article, which just was terrific. I can't imagine how hard it was to do, frankly, was the Fitbit story about how, and I'll let you tell it. But to me, that was the same thing. Like I'm just going to do things my way. I don't care what anyone thinks of this, of how anybody feels about it, but I'm doing the world my way. Tell the, tell the Fitbit story. And am I reading kind of correctly into his makeup of who he is?
0: Yeah, here you are. It was interesting. That was the first time we met, and uh, he had this watch on, and he told me it was a Fitbit watch, and I hadn't seen a Fitbit watch before. And I'm, you know, I'm sure lots of people have them, but I hadn't particularly seen one before. Um, and and then he told me about that, the the buzzing on it, and it was so interesting to me that he'd been given this watch as a gift, and he was steadfast on the idea that I'm not going to let this device change how I view you know, fitness or exercise or that kind of stuff. But he was going to rejigger it to be this reminder system. what it did, he does it between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. And he's trying it out, he says, you know, for the last month now. And, and, uh, and he's still going forward with it. The idea would be that it'll buzz every hour on the hour. And at that point, Sam will consider his last hour. And he'll spend one minute considering it. Did I reach my goals? Was I productive? Did I get waylaid by something else? You know, someone, quote, hijacking my agenda. Um, and then I'll spend the next minute thinking about the hour to come, what he hopes to get out of it, what his goals are for that. And then he moves on with his day. You know, obviously, if he's in a meeting, he's not going to stop and do it in the meeting. Um, but it was a really interesting thing. I don't think I could do it. You know, uh, I like to to do some of those sort of life hacks. But after spending time with Sam, I bet he does it, and I bet it's relatively helpful for him. And if it's not, He'll get rid of it and try something new. There seem to be a bunch of these things,
1: life hacks, I guess you call it. I find it—I find it almost inspiring. Like, oh, I try that. What are the people who've worked with him? Are they inspired by him? Do they find him incredibly strange? He's certainly a different bird.
0: Well, yeah. Here's the here's the toughest thing in writing this story and reporting it is that that is, you know, if you tell people about Sam or you write a story about him that's what's going to come away if he's a different bird. But if you spend time with him, he is the most amiable, normal-seeming guy in the world. So you talk to all his friends, I talk to his friends from college and grad school and, uh, and in business, they all say, man, we just wish these people who are, you know, who don't have the, the right idea of Sam could just have lunch with him." You know, Sam, in their minds, like the world needs to have lunch with Sam Hickey because he is really charming He's funny. He doesn't use all these big words. Um, he's, you know, he's a small-town Oklahoma guy who loves pickup basketball uh, and, and talks about this stuff. And so it's only when you go back and you sort of really compile it all that you realize, okay, he, he is quite different. His brain works a lot differently. Uh, you know, I talk to other GMs, and they're like, he's brilliant. He's obviously brilliant. And you talk to people in business, they say, you hey, guys, brilliant. He's one of the top five smartest people I've met but he doesn't come off that way. And that's to me, the, the most interesting thing about Sam. And I wanted that to come across in the piece. I'm not even sure how successful I was because the things about him, um, that are interesting to other people are all the little, uh, you know, the way his brain works. So the things that make him interesting as a person are what we would consider not surprising or boring. You know, he's a good dad. He's a good friend. He's a good mentor. Um, you know, uh, He's he's honest. He's trustworthy. You know these kind of they're not like sexy things to put in the story. So you put him in, but people sort of go right to the, the other anecdotes, right? Um, so that was a, a bit of a challenge in, in writing it. Uh, but but I felt like you know those those life hack things. I was just like you. I was trying them out myself, stealing them, and I, and often feeling a little bit cowed by just how efficient he was.
1: Yeah, and I I found myself in awe of it. I I don't I don't think I. I have a brain that doesn't stop. I always joke with people. They're always, and I always say, like, but you realize that I have it 365, 24 hours, seven days a week, right? Like, you realize it's yeah. all the time. And I can't imagine reading this piece. I can't figure out. Here's the thing I couldn't figure out. Is he a hooper who loves the game that was given this brain, and so he tried to mix the two? Or did he see basketball as an area that had a, almost an economic gap that he could take advantage
0: of? No, I mean, definitely a Hooper. I mean, like, there's not a lot of reason why he should have chosen sports or basketball. I mean, talk about, like, uh, he goes to University of Oklahoma. USA Today named him, you now it's sort of a bizarre thing to name people, but one of the top 60 undergrads in America. I mean, he was already working for the 49ers when he was in grad school at his MBA at Stanford, went to Bain Capital. I mean, he could have been a millionaire by 24 and he could be retired right now, sitting on a beach, doing the very conventional route. But he loved basketball and sports so much growing up um, that I think he, like a lot of, like a lot of young people, really smart people now, he's like, why not follow this dream? Why not give it a shot? Uh, but he took a like a huge pay cut going to the Rockets, um, and and definitely put almost like a, a seven or eight year hold on the parts of his life that that would have been available to him had he stayed in business.
1: You talk about Pocket, the app we talked about at the beginning, and his just he's constantly just adding information, adding information. What do you think he's looking for?
0: Oh, I know, because we share stories. Uh, you know, it's funny. He, he has a, a system, of course, because he's a system guy. He has a system for that, just like anything else. Um, and so like if, if you recommend Sam Hinckley a book, he'll write it down. But he'll usually, unless it sounds amazing, unless you say this is, unless David Locke says this is the best book I read last year or the last five years, he'll wait for someone else to recommend it or someone else to see it. So he'll wait for sort of an aggregate that says, okay, I'll check that out. He really is interested in machine learning, uh, AI, any kind of uh, things that that relate to productivity, efficiency. um, His great goal is how you make better objective decisions. Uh, so a lot of what he's reading might be, I mean, he sent me an interesting story from Medium about the future with uh, driverless long-haul trucking and how it will affect the middle class. And how that, in turn, because it's one of the few jobs left where you don't need a secondary education, you make decent money, you take all these jobs off the road, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that's the kind of stuff that gets his brain going, futurist stuff. You know, where, where does this lead? Who wants to think, okay, we're five years from now, ten years from now. Any stories that hit on that. And he loves basketball. I and mean, he reads everybody. You know, uh, Zach Lowe, Arnovitz, everybody. He's out there reading.
1: Yeah, I, I was fortunate. When he was in Houston, I used to talk to him a lot. I have not talked to him since he left Houston. Sometimes, got, you know, the top of the uh, chain gets big. I mean, I saw him, and every time we played him, I saw him and said hi. But uh, I always enjoyed him. And the, when, And reading your piece, I actually would die to spend time. I mean, he just... He sounds like somebody you'd want in your cadre of friends, badly.
0: Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, and it was interesting. I'm going to get through some of the pinky wonkiness here, but, you know, I didn't go go in the article a lot of this, but I find it interesting. He talked about when he got to um, Stanford for grad school, they talked about the T-Network. The Are you familiar with that? No. So the T, the idea is, you know, in, in going into something – that you go broad across the top of the T, whatever it is, and then you go deep, you know, the the vertical line of the T. The deep on this one thing, it'll go broad elsewhere. So theoretically, you should go to grad school, and you should make all these connections while going deep with this select group of people. Sam's theory was, screw that. I'm just going to go deep with these 15 people. But they're going to become lifelong friends, friends who, you know, he says today these are friends who... Uh, you know, if something ever happened to him and his wife, these people would take care of his kids, you know, just people that he sees all the time, talks to all the time, that he can trust, and that, that value system meant that when I talked to his friends anyone who knew him, it was always like they cleared it with Sam, and then they were very careful about what they said, uh, and they just wanted me to again and again to know, well, what a good guy this guy was, and, you know, you sort of flip the script, and you think to yourself, man, I wish if someone, <laughs> if someone wrote a story about me, if I get those kind of comments, it would be pretty amazing. It doesn't always happen. You think it would, but it doesn't always happen right in your stories.
1: That's interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but Drew Houston, who is the CEO of Dropbox, in I think 2013, gave a commencement address at MIT. He had two things to his life, and I'll actually ask you the second one here in a second. He, he told them the first thing in his life is the five people you spend the most time with in the next Five to eight years of your life will dictate who you are and where you go. So Sam Sam would definitely, those were graduating from MIT. His other one, uh, which Sam I think clearly has found, is he said you got to go find your tennis ball. And the tennis ball analogy was if you throw a tennis ball to a dog, a dog will run through a bog, over bushes, jump over this, grab the tennis ball, run back to you, drop it at your feet, and be like, let's go again. And you gotta find that tennis ball. So, you know, it's, Sam sounds like actually a guy who's done both of those two things. Um, you in in the piece, uh, my my favorite anecdote. I don't want to tell them all because it's such a great article. Is the house hunting? But what it told me is that he can never <laughs> that he can never turn it off. Do you think? And this is a personal one for me, but do you think he can play a board game with his kids without trying to optimize it?
0: Yes. And that's, I mean, well, I think, right. I didn't, you know, one of the preconditions, which I mentioned the story. Uh, I mean, Sam's really smart. He knows how the, the journalist process, process works. So he's like, you know, Chris, I like you. You're a good guy. Someday when you retire from, you know, (laughs) being a journalist, you can come to my house, but you can't come to my house to this article. You know, he really values that privacy, but according to what he told me and according to what I hear, um, he sort of sees like, now I'm going to optimize. I'm going to do quality of time with my family. Uh, so now, now I'm going to optimize that, but it's not going to be, it's not going to be optimized. It's going to be that if I have, and he gets home now most days, it might be 5 p.m., uh, and he said, I'm like aggressively with my kid, but he's playing, he's hanging out. He's, you know, they're, they're riding, the boys ride scooters, things like that. Um, so I, I think he, he's able to do that and, maybe that brain is still working in the background, like buyer's check software. I don't know. Uh, but I, I, you know, I don't know either. He really put on a good show of it, but I don't think that's his thing. He seems to be pretty consistent. Um, So I came away from it thinking this guy is a, you know, he's a pretty devoted family man. He kept talking about how uh, his wife was the, the most important thing he ever did was, was sort of moving her and, and even at one point he said the long tail of it, you know, we've got four kids. I wanted two, you know, she wanted three. We compromised for four. Um, <laughs> so I really do think he's <laughs> he's been able to to sort of separate those two.
1: We'll continue more with Chris, talk about Steve Kerr, why he likes him so much, and then we'll talk NBA with Chris and players he likes to watch the most. I just want to remind you this is Locked On NBA. It's part of the Locked On Podcast Network, and your team out there has a daily podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your favorite team has a daily 15- to 22-minute podcast Monday through Friday. Please subscribe on iTunes, and if you get a chance to give us five stars for Locked On NBA, we'd appreciate it. You had a little line in there that he really likes Steve Kerr. How come?
0: Well, Kerr is, I mean, Kerr is really bright, obviously, but he's also a growth mindset guy. And growth mindset, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have come across this idea that you're always, no matter what point you're at, In life, we're always trying to get better and and find ways to augment what you already have. And I think that's also what Sam's feeling about all coaches is the guys he would look for would have this set of skills, including EQ and communication and all the basketball stuff. But also, he wants someone who's got a growth mindset, who's a you know lifelong learner. And Kerr clearly has that.
1: Was he destined to fail? This is a little bit of a long question. Was he destined to fail because he was so audacious, such audacity, trying something different, which by implication was that he was better than everyone else in a business where you kind of have to pretend you're in with the agents, you have to pretend you're in with the other GMs. And he was so, whether he meant to be or not, he was so out there that he was indirectly telling everyone else, "I'm, I'm doing it better than you. And so that he was destined to fail because of that.
0: Well, yeah, personally, I, I think that was his big blind spot. I, you know, one of them was this, you know, I, you know, I think Sam would feel like, okay, I wasn't saying I was smarter than anybody else, right? Um, I, was just, I wasn't saying anything. I was just doing it. But, uh, you know, you look at someone like Bob Myers, who, by the way, Sam really respects, and, you know, Bob's superpower is that he's doing all this stuff for the Warriors, but everybody likes Bob, you know everyone everyone in the league likes Bob of course you would like Bob sure you know he's absolutely you know, destroying the league, not all him obviously you know there's a lot of factors involved there but but for a guy at the helm of that, he's remained that um he's re- retained that likability, and that's something that Sam didn't work at. He felt best to, to maintain the competitive you know, get a competitive advantage by not saying anything um but yeah. If, Agents suddenly feel slighted. Well, agents are a pretty big part of the process. Even if you know Sam might argue they're an overvalued one, uh, and, and that's a skewed, you know, microclimate in itself of how agents work with teams, et cetera. Well, yeah, but you can't just ignore it. So I think that's probably what what tripped him up.
1: Uh, Chris, let's I will switch focus if I can. Uh, great piece, by the way. Make sure you go. Make sure you go grab it. Um, if, if you were to redo your book, Art of a Art of a Beautiful Game, and so in that book, uh, Chris sat down. Uh, I've been doing this off the top of my head. Dwight Howard, Steve Kerr, Steve Nash, Ray Allen, is that right? Did I get that right?
0: Close, close. A bunch of guys. I mean, Thaddeus was my wing defender, like oh, overly yeah, right. nerdy yeah. guy, who, by the way, that was Sam Hinkey was really helpful for that chapter. I did... Uh, Kerr for pure shooter. Yeah, I did Howard for the idea of like why isn't he a better rebounder? And then I talked to guys who were really good rebounders uh, and a whole a whole bunch more.
1: So and I loved it. And if you're a basketball junkie, it's great. If you were to redo the book today, who would mm-hmm. you do, who would you take? Who would you do?
0: Oh well, Curry's the guy, right? Like that, that's uh, I just I find him so fascinating as a basketball. Um, just like such an outlier, you know. Uh, so, Curry would be there for rebounding. I don't feel like there is a like a rebounding savant. I'm actually working on a story right now about Rodman, because it's the uh, 25th anniversary of the year that he averaged 18.7 boards. And I don't think we have someone like that today in the league, which is, which is a bummer. I mean, there's a lot of good rebounders, but most of them are like DeAndre Jordan and Andre Drummond. They're just really big guys. Um, as far as... Point guard, I guess you'd probably go with Chris Paul. I'm fascinated by his combination of leadership and defense. You look at his body type, you're not, that wouldn't be the best point guard defender in the league, but he is. Uh, you know, from, from the metrics, what we can tell, probably by a decent margin, too. Um, but, yeah, I've thought about that a lot. Like, who are the guys you'd, you'd love to just do a deep dive on? And it helps to have you can find the really smart players, because then they can explain their process.
1: I feel like the players in the league are really smart. I'm, I'm really, I, agree. I, I, I really, and there was actually an incredible New York Times piece that was done probably about five years ago uh, now about how the stereotype of the NBA players, the inner city kid who couldn't get an education, so he goes and gets an NBA, goes and plays in the NBA, just, just couldn't be further yeah. from the truth. And that the fact is they actually looked at it and those kids, it's so hard to make the league that those kids actually don't make it. And I think the—I mean, James Harden is really smart. I mean, you can hate the way he plays, and it's clear we played him last night. That I mean, when they—he got called for an, a defensive foul, and the crowd went crazy, right? They're just so tired of. But he, you got to understand angles. You got to understand body movements. There, there's a tremendous amount of things you have to understand to be able to play that way.
0: For sure, and you know, some guys who are what we consider traditionally smart, uh, it can be an impediment. I mean, I always felt like covering Harrison Barnes, who, by the way, is a really good, good person, from what I can tell, and really bright guy. You know, I think he got in his own way, overthinking it a bit, um, and and so I bet you Harden's level of intelligence—it's uh, a different kind. You know, a spatial intelligence is, is part of it, and 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 sort of understanding speeds and rhythms and things like that. That's why Nash was so brilliant, was he understood. All the space, and that's obviously LeBron's greatest strength, too, is, is for that really a poor vision. But, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. Not only that, but they've got so many people helping them be smarter. When you have a trainer and this coach and that coach, and you've been through a whole system, and you're getting good advice, not just, you know, put your hand into the cookie jar, you know, or, hey, work harder, uh, that kind of stuff.
1: You know, it's interesting, though. There, There is a level where what you're talking about, can hurt them because the other thing about these guys that are all great, and I and I gotta be careful with some of these stories, is they're a little insane. Like I'll I'll never forget having lunch with an NBA player who started talking to me about how pissed off he was about the off season and how many articles had been written about two other players. Now frankly I hadn't seen a single article written about either of them. So how he saw them, he must have been like reading I don't have any idea. But it's like they find this demon. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you. I don't want to. I'll tell you off the uh, interview. But I don't. I, it's not fair to this player to reveal this. But it was like. It, yeah. I, I remember leaving that lunch though, and you know what the thought I had when I left the lunch was, oh, he's going to be great. Like, because you have to have yeah. a little bit short of the bacon on the BLT to be able to be great.
0: <laughs> I, I suppose so. Yeah, yeah. If you're, I've always thought about that. If you're. The kind of person who, who leads a really balanced life, you're never going to get really, really good at one thing. And to make it to the NBA, obviously, you need to be on some level, either just like freakishly, freakishly talented or gifted physically or obsessive about it. Uh, and you, know, you can't be like, Hey, I'm going to be a Renaissance man. And playing the NBA is one of those things. Maybe once upon a time, you know, the Dave Winfield era, but, uh, you're right.
1: It goes a little bit to that Hinky quote about how he wanted to know the the uh, what he wanted to know. He wanted to know the record and score of every one on one, two on two, three on three that Kobe had ever played.
0: Right? I love that. Uh, we first talked about that uh, six or seven years ago, and I love that he's still going to that one. Which is the idea? Of, like, if you could have any metric that's not available, what would it be? And this is going back to the time in Houston at first. You know, one of his first projects was just creating shot charts. That information wasn't available at the time. So I think you would try to create shot charts by scraping data, and then their idea would be, okay, can we then predict based on the shot chart data where someone might shoot well from? So if someone's good at left wing 12 feet, can we get a correlation to whether they'd be good from, you know, left wing 14 feet? We don't know. That's kind of stuff they're doing then. Now we have so much data that he's still looking at the big picture. And the one you mentioned is the idea of, Every game you've ever played, if it's two on two in your backyard when you were nine, if it's JV basketball, if it was the family picnic against, you know, you know six cousins, including a, a six year old, what is the score, aggregate score of those games? He <laughs> thinks that would tell you a lot about a person. Uh,
1: how many kids did you say you have?
0: Two. Well, you can probably, I'm actually, <laughs> the reason I'm, uh, you know, I mean, I'm approaching their school to pick them up here at clock.
1: So I mean, I'm sure. I mean, i sure you have one of them. I mean, most of us have the first kids, the rule follower. I think my daughter, my second one, knows the score of every game she's ever played. Uh, let me really. Yeah, I, I promise. Well, the, you. Um, I promise. Just, you. Hey, hey, every golf. Think he's going to
0: start uh, tracking her. careful.
1: Every golf <laughs> shot she's ever taken, she know she could tell you. I mean, absolutely. Let me. Let, I know you need to go. Let me leave you. Let me leave you with this. It's my favorite part of the piece where he talks about he doesn't like to believe in narratives because narratives lead you to bad decisions. And I fight narrative every day of the week. But how? How do we fight narrative? When you're suddenly trying to fight narrative, in turn your almost narrative becomes that you fight everything anyone ever tells you. So what's the answer on that one?
0: Oh, man, I I think isn't isn't that the struggle? You know, it's our job. It's my job is to find the narrative. Uh, And, Sam, you can argue. Obviously, my argument in the piece is that perhaps – ignored it too much so if it's so powerful and so available maybe it's just about recognizing when you have the narrative and when you're being fooled by things that look like a narrative I don't know I know if, if you figure that one out let me know It's Chris Ballard. The other book he
1: wrote is One Shot at Forever, which was a really fun read as well. uh, Chris and I, as I said, our lives have mirrored each other. I actually think your kids are – you may be picking your kids up at a school I went to um, for all I know right now. I don't expect you to say it on the air, but just kind of – where our conversation is and where your story was, Sam, is you're sitting where I grew up. So, uh, And, you know, as I said in the open, I actually watched Chris play a college basketball game. I just didn't know who he was. I probably probably ragged on you. Um, So in our parallel lives. Uh, My final thing, I just want to thank you for the Robert Swift story. I covered him, was with him for most of the time in Seattle. Uh, He's the single worst case of any NBA player I've ever been around who was destroyed by his parents. And the... In the you know the group that was around him he's he 's Marinovich without in its worse in some ways, uh, and so that piece he did was yeah really moving to me but uh, it 's a that 's a sad sad story i, I hope robert 's okay, but he 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 was you know maybe to that point of where we started this Chris on the new york times article he's he's he 's the impoverished kid he, you know he 's white, so he doesn 't fit the stereotype or the narrative but he he 's the impoverished kid who they rush out through no college, get him through, get him to the NBA as soon as possible to make the money. And eventually it caught up to him. And it's just a terrible, it's a terrible story.
0: Yeah, and it was really heartening to see that, you know, uh, Bob Myers helped arrange for a tryout after that came out with the um, Santa Cruz Warriors. And, you know, that alone, that confidence boost for Robert was big. So part of it's just, you know, uh, positive feedback now that there's 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 something going on. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm rooting for him as well.
1: And if you have a second, I know you watch the Warriors probably every night. Quick thought on what you're seeing?
0: Uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's just going to get better for them. And then a point may come where they get a little bored. <laughs> you know, there's this initial fire of, you know, you lose an early game and then you, everyone gets all excited and Durant is playing out of his mind. And then, you know, hey, midseason, I'll be curious, you know, where's it at in February? Is, is Draymond still cool? scoring six and a half points, you know, is Durant still blocking six shots? I don't know. You know, maybe they can sustain it, but that's, it's an awfully tough pace to sustain for regular season. You look at other teams, you know, Spurs are already resting guys. I think LeBron's rested at least once. So my guess is that probably Kerr will let them run this out a little bit and then maybe start tapering. Uh, but they sure are fun to watch.
1: And we have JR Smith hugging players. Which is the ultimate sign of the lack of focus of a championship team on Game 20 in the NBA? Season. <laughs>
0: there you go,
1: Chris. Thanks so much. Great, incredible piece on Sam. Thanks so much for taking the time on Locked On NBA. Keep up the great work. I'll hopefully see you December 20th when we're in the Bay Area. If you come out to the game, uh, hope everything's well in the Bay Area. And thanks again
0: so much for the time. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me on, and uh, go stay chance.
1: There you go. All right, that is Chris Ballard from Sports Illustrated. Incredible piece. The two books he's also written that I'd suggest if you're looking for Christmas gifts are One Shot at Forever, and the other one is the uh, basketball book we've talked about this whole time, The, Be- the uh, Art of the Beautiful Game, Chris Ballard.